0: I was trained to think for myself and get things done. It's what the British, as a nation, used to believe in. But there are some kids today who seem to want everything handed to them on a plate. Perhaps, if our parents were like mine were, we would be a nation of go-getters, as we used to be. When I was four years old, Mom stopped the car a few miles from our house and told me to find my own way home across the fields. She made it a game, one I was happy to play. It was an early challenge. As I grew older, these lessons grew harder. Early one winter morning, Mum shook me awake and told me to get dressed. It was dark and cold, but I crawled out of bed. I was given a packed lunch and an apple. "I'm sure you will find some water along the way," Mum said as she waved me off on a 50-mile bike ride to the south coast. It was still dark when I set off on my own. I spent the night with a relative and returned home the next day. When I walked into the kitchen at home, I felt very proud. I was sure I would be greeted by cheers. Instead, mom said, well done, Ricky. Was that fun? Now run along, the vicar wants you to chop some logs for him. To some people this might sound harsh. But the members of my family love and care for each other very much. We are a close-knit unit. My parents wanted us to be strong and to rely on ourselves. Dad was always there for us, but Mom was the one who drove us to want to do our best. I learned about business and money for her. She would say things like, the winner takes all and, chase your dreams quote. Mom knew that losing wasn't fair, but it is life. It's not a good idea to teach children that they can win all the time. In the real world, people struggle. When I was born, Dad was just starting out in law and money was tight. Mom didn't moan. She had two aims. One was to find useful tasks for me and my sisters. Being idle was frowned on. The other was to find ways to make money. At home, we talked business at dinner. I know some parents keep their work away from the kids. They won't share their problems. But I believe their children never really learn the value of money. Sometimes, when they get into the real world they can't cope. We knew that the real world was about my sister lindy and i helped mom with her projects it was fun it made for a great sense of teamwork within our family i have tried to bring holly and sam up in the same way although i have been lucky to have more money than my parents had i still think my mom's rules were good and i believe holly and sam have learned the value of money mom made little wooden tissue boxes and waste paper bins her workshop was the garden shed and it was our job to help her we painted them and stacked them up. Herod's ordered them and sales boomed. She also took in French and German students as paying guests. Hard work and fun were family traits. Mum's sister, Aunt Claire, was keen on black Welsh sheep. She got the idea of starting a company to sell mugs with black sheep on them. Ladies in the village knitted woolies with sheep designs. The company did very well and is still going strong. Years later, when I was running Virgin Records, Aunt Claire phoned me to say that one of her sheep had started singing. I didn't laugh. Her ideas were always clever. Instead, I followed the sheep around with a tape recorder. Baba Black Sheep became a hit. It reached number 4 in the charts. I went from small cottage industry to setting up Virgin Worldwide. The risks became bigger. I learned to be bold in my dealings and ideas. Although I listen with care to everyone, I still rely on myself and in my goals. I lost faith in myself only once. By 1986 Virgin was one of Britain's largest private companies, with 4,000 members of staff. Sales had increased by 60% from the year before. I was told I should go public, sell shares in my business. Two of my partners were not keen, because they knew me well. They said I would hate losing control. But the bankers said it was a good idea. It would give me more capital to work with. Other big private companies, like Body Shop and Sock Shop, had gone public. They were doing well. Pushed hard by the bankers, I made up my mind and launched Virgin on the stock exchange. Around 70,000 people applied for shares by post. Those who had left it too late lined up in the city to buy shares in person. I will never forget walking up the long line of people to thank them for their faith in us. I was very moved when they said things like, we're not going holiday this year, we're putting our savings in Virgin and we're banking on you, Richard. It wasn't long, though, before I came to hate the ways of the city. They worked for me. Instead of a casual meeting with my business partners on my houseboat to discuss what bands to sign, I had to ask a board of directors. Many of them had no idea at all what the music business was all about. They didn't see how a hit record could make millions overnight. Instead of being able to sign someone who was hot before our arrivals did, I had to wait for weeks for a board meeting. By then, it was too late. Or they'd say things like, sign the Rolling Stones? My wife doesn't like them. Janet Jackson? Who's she? I have always made fast decisions and acted on my instinct. Then. I was stifled. Most of all, I no longer felt that I was standing on my own feet. We doubled our profits but virgin shares started to slip and, for the first time in my life, I was depressed. Then there was huge stock market crash. Shares dropped fast. It wasn't my fault, but I felt that I was letting down all the people who had bought virgin shares. Many were friends and family as well as our staff. But many were like the couple who had given me their life savings. I made up my mind. I would buy all the shares back, at the price everyone had paid for them. I didn't have to pay that much, but I didn't want to let people down. I personally raised the pounds 182 million needed, but it was worth it to keep my good name and my freedom. The day that Virgin became a private company again was like landing safely after a record attempt in a powerboat or a balloon. I felt nothing but relief. Once again, I was the captain of my ship and master of my fate. I believe in myself. I believe in the hands that work, in the brains that think, and in the hearts that love. Chapter 6, Live the Mount. Love life and live it to the full. Enjoy the moment. Reflect on your life. Make every second count. Don't have regrets. It was 1997. I was in a round-the-world hot air balloon race. Before I left, I wrote a long letter to my children, in case I didn't return. I started the letter by saying, Dear Holly and Sam, life can seem rather unreal at times. Alive and well and loving one day. No longer there the next. As you both know I always had the urge to live life to its full. I wrote the letter just in case the worst happened. We had taken off at dawn from Marrakech in Morocco. Twelve hours later, it seemed, as if we were about to crash in flames into the Atlas Mountains. They say a dying man relives his life in his final seconds. For me, this was not true. All I thought was that, if I escaped with my life, I would never do this again. We fought hard all night to keep the balloon up. By dawn, we were over the desert, where we could come down safely. As we drifted to Earth I sat up on the glass roof of the capsule, watching the beauty of the golden dawn as it broke over the desert. This was a day I never thought I'd see and the rising sun and growing warmth of the day seemed very precious. It made me aware that hard-won things are more valuable than those that come too easily. It reminded me to always enjoy the moment. I love balloons to such an extent that I have one of my own. It's a small balloon with a wicker basket, like the one in Around the World in 80 Days. I often take family and friends up in it. It is one of the most peaceful places I know. It makes me feel at one with nature. You glide silently along, away from the rest of the world. No one can phone you, no one can stop you. You are free. You look down on towns and fields and people who don't know you're there. You can fly nest to a wild swan and hear the beat of its wings. You can look into the eyes of an eagle. Balloons have taught me to reflect more. On Earth, my life is vast and hectic, each moment full. It can be too busy. We all need our own space and it's good to pause and do nothing. It gives us time to think. It recharges our bodies as well as our minds. I often think of the fishermen I watched that Christmas in Japan. It's in our nature to strive, so I wondered what they looked for in life. They seemed content fishing and feeding their families. They didn't seem driven to set up fish canning empires. As far as I knew, they didn't want to cross the Pacific in a balloon or climb Mount Everest. They took each day as it came. They lived in the moment, and perhaps this is what gave them peace of mind. My grandmother lived life to the full. At the age of 89 she became the oldest person in Britain to pass the advanced Latin American ballroom dancing exam. She was 90, when she became the oldest person to hit a hole-in-one at golf. She never stopped learning. In her mid-90s she read Stephen Hawking's book, A Brief History of Time, which may make her one of the few people to have read it all the way through. Shortly before her death at the age of 99 she went on a cruise around the behind in Jamaica wearing only her swimming costume. Her attitude was that you've only got one go in life, so you should make the most of it. My parents are getting on and are into their 80's now. Like granny did, they still hop on and off planes and travel around the world. They have been there at the start and end of all my adventures, cheering me on. They even went looking for me when her and I were lost in the wilds of the frozen north, after our balloon came down in a blizzard in Canada. Their example reminds me to enjoy life. In 1999, we bought a game reserve in South Africa and built a lovely house. Here we spend time together as a family. In fact, I am so aware of how precious time with them is, I ration myself to only 15 minutes of business a day when we're together. I don't use modern gadgets like email or mobile phones, but in Africa I did learn to use a satellite phone to keep in touch with the office. Many bosses who spend all day in their office are baffled. They ask, how can you do it all in just 15 minutes? I say, it's easy make every second count. That is true in both my business and personal life. I am able to say that now because I am older and perhaps wiser. It wasn't always the case. My first wife, Kristen, got very irate because I was always on the phone. She said I spent my life working and couldn't draw the line between work and home. She was right. Part of the trouble was that I worked from home. I couldn't resist picking up the phone when it rang, which it did, non-stop. I wished I could just let it ring but I never knew when it might lead to a nice deal. Even today, even when I am relaxing, I never stop thinking. My brain is working all the time when I am awake, churning out ideas. Because Virgin is a worldwide company, I find I need to be awake much of the time. One of the things I am very good at is catnapping, catching an hour or two of sleep at a time. Of all the skills I have learned, that one is vital for me. On a bus between Hong Kong and China, for example, when nothing much is going on, I will sleep. I wake refreshed and ready to go for long hours. It's also a very good way of switching off. Winston Churchill and Margaret Thatcher were masters of the catnap, and I use their example in my own life. The Spanish painter, Salvador Dali, had a unique way to savor the moment. When he was bored with life, he would walk in his clifftop garden. He would pick a perfect peach, warm from the sun, and hold it in his hand to admire its golden skin. He would sniff it. The warm perfume would fill his senses. Then he would take a single bite. His mouth would fill with luscious juice. He would savor it slowly. Then he would spit out the mouthful and throw the peach into the sea below. He said it was a perfect moment and he gained more from that than from eating a basket of peaches. In a way, regrets are like wanting the peach you have thrown away. It's gone, but you are filled with remorse. You wish you hadn't thrown it away. You. Want it back. I believe the one thing that helps is to have no regrets. Regrets weigh you down. They hold you back in the past, when you should move on. It's hard to lose out in a business deal, but harder still to suffer from guilt. We all do things we wish we hadn't. Sometimes, they seem like big mistakes, but later, when they seem like big mistakes, but later, when you look back, they turn out to be small. Regret, which leads to a sense of guilt can give you sleepless nights. But I believe the past is the past. You can't change it. So, even if sometimes you get things wrong, regrets are wasted and you should move on. A case of this is when Kristen and I went on holiday to Mexico. She chose a place where there were no phones. No one could get in touch with me. A couple of days before we were due to leave, I tried to hire a boat to go deep-sea fishing. I asked a fisherman if he would take us out the next day. He refused, saying it looked like there might be a storm. I thought he was holding out for more money. I was eager to go and said I would pay him double. A couple more tourists from the bar said they'd go too, and they also paid double. We were having exciting day of sport when I noticed that it was growing dark. The wind rose and it grew cold. It started to rain. They started the engine to head home but the rudder jammed so the boats couldn't steer and went round in circles. The storm grew stronger and the sea was being pounded hard. I was sure she was about to break up and sink. After an hour, the worst of the storm seemed to have passed. There was calm and a strange light. In fact, we were in the eye of the storm. In the distance I could see a solid black line coming closer across the waves. It was the far wall of the storm and looked alarming. I thought we would all die when it get us. Kristen was a strong swimmer and she said we should swim for the shore, which was two miles away, and try to beat the storm. Everyone said we were mad, but the fisherman gave us a plank of wood to hold onto and we jumped into the sea. I went from being scared of drowning to the terror of being eaten by sharks. We were swept far down the coast. Two hours later, half frozen, we dragged our way up through the surf, onto the beach. Somehow, we stumbled through mangrove swabs back to the village for help. We found a big boat to go and rescue the fishing boat, but we ran into an even bigger storm and were tossed back to shore. When the storm cleared, they searched for two days, but found nothing. I could have tried to live with the guilt. Instead, although it was tragic, I realized that I had to apply logic to it. I told myself that the fishermen took the money against their better judgment, but they didn't have to. It was the state of the boat that was the problem, and that wasn't my fault. If the ferry goes down with loss of life, it's not the passenger school are at fault, but the captain or the owners. The story of the lost boat came out when my book was published some years later. The Daily Mirror sent a reporter to Mexico to find out what had happened. To my relief, they found the boat and the crew alive and well. The tide and winds had taken them many miles down the coast. It took time to fix their boat and there was no radio and no phones to keep in touch. After we had left for home, they sailed safely into the harbor. I didn't know any of this. I could have spent years living with needless remorse if I had allowed myself to. Always living in the future can slow us down as much as always looking behind. Many people are always looking ahead and they never seem content. They look for quick fixes, like winning the lottery. I know that goals are important. Money is important. But the bottom line is money is just a means to an end, not an end in itself. And what is going on now is just as important as what you're planning for the future. So, even though my diary is full for months ahead, I have learned to live for the moment. Chapter 7, Value Family and Friends Put the family and the team first. Be loyal. Face problems head on. Money is for making things happen. Pick the right people and reward talent. One evening, just up the coast from Kingston on the island of Jamaica, I sat on the beach outside a bar, listening to Bob Marley and drinking beer. In the sea, a flock of pelicans were diving after fish. They took turns, one after another, diving into shoals. They seemed to be working as a team so each bird would get a share. Our family was like that, a close-knit team. Virgin is also like a big family. Today, there are some 40,000 members of staff, but each one of those team members counts. This idea of teamwork came from my childhood. Mom always tried to find something for us to do. If we tried to escape, she told us we were selfish. One Sunday at church, instead of sitting next to a boy who was staying with us, I slid into the seat next to my best friend, Nick. Mom was hopping mad. A guest was a guest, she said, and guests must be put first. She told dad to beat me. He didn't. Behind the closed door of his study he clapped his hands to make the right noise and I howled loud enough for mom to hear. My dad was often out at work and it was mom who was in control of the children but they were both a big influence and I continue to get on well with both of them today. You can be best friends with someone and still not agree with them and if you are close, you can get through it and remain friends. Nick came to work on Student Magazine with me. He was good at handling the money side of things. He moved our cash out of the old biscuit tin, where we kept it and into a proper bank account. He also helped find us a big house so we could move out of our cramped basement office. I thought things were doing well, so I was shocked when I sat down at my desk one day to find a memo to the staff. The memo said they should sack me as publisher and run students among themselves. Mick had left it there by mistake. I felt betrayed, but knew I had to turn the crisis around by getting rid of Mick. I asked him to step outside and said, Some of the others have come to me and said they don't like what you're planning. I acted like I knew all about it. Mick was in shock that he had been caught out. I said, We can remain friends, but I think you should go. Mick looked sheepish. I'm sorry, Ricky, he said. I thought it was for the best. He left and we did remain friends. It was the first fight I had ever had with anyone. I was very upset that the fight was with my best friend. But, by facing it head on, I stopped it from getting worse. The lesson I learned was that it's best to bring things out into the open. A dispute with a friend or a colleague can be sorted in a friendly way. Student continued to grow. We expanded into selling mail-order records. I couldn't do it on my own and offered Nick the chance to come back and 40% of the new mail-order business, if he would return. He bore me no grudge and came back into the fold. Money was always tight in those early years. Mick handled the problem by cutting costs and being nice to debt collectors, who then caused us less often. He said, it's fine to pay bills late, as long as you pay them in the end. The mail-order business boomed. But student was taking up too much time, and another problem was cash flow of cash through the business might dry up. I tried to sell the magazine to Ike, one of the biggest print media groups in the UK at that time. They were eager to have me stay on as editor and asked for my plans. As always, I had plenty of ideas and launched into them. I think the Ike board was stunned when they heard my lavish dreams for the future. I started talking about a cheap student bank, nightclubs and hotels for students. I said we should run a cheap train service, and when I mentioned a cheap airline, It was clear that they thought I was Madman. We'll let you know, they said, as they showed me the door. Don't call us, we'll call you. That was the end of my big plans for Student. Instead we opened our first record shop. I often wonder what would have happened if Ike has listened to me. Would they, instead of Virgin, have airlines and trains now? Our next step was to open a studio to make records. I wanted it to be a place where people could come and hang out and have fun. In the early 1970s, recording studios were run like an office. They were hostile places for bands to work in. Having to play rock and roll at 9 o'clock in the morning was not fun. Also, every band had to supply everything they needed, from drums to amps. I decided to look for a large country house where we could all be one big, happy family. I was excited when I saw an advert for a castle for a sale for only 2000 It was a bargain. I loved the idea of owning a castle. I dreamed of bands like the Beatles had been in the 1960s and the Rolling Stones flocking there to record. Full of high hopes and big plans, I drove to Wales to inspect it. Sadly, the castle was stuck in the middle of a new housing estate. My dreams faded. On the way back to London. I saw another advert for an old manor house near Oxford. It wasn't castle, but perhaps it would do. I drove down narrow lane, off the beaten track. A long drive wound off through trees. The house was at the end. As soon as I saw the lovely, rambling old place, I fell in love with it. Glowing in the evening sun, it stood in its own private park. There was tons of room. The stones and the beetles could have a wing each. It was perfect. Excited, I called the estate agent. It's pounds thirty-five zero zero. He said, "We'll come down a little." I asked, "For a quick sale, you can have it for pounds thirty thousand. It's a bargain." Perhaps it was a bargain if you had that kind of money. I was thinking more in terms of pounds five thousand. The asking price was so far beyond my reach; it didn't seem worthwhile trying to raise it. But I had to try and achieve my dream. For the first time in my life, I put on a smart suit and polished old school shoes. I hoped to impress my bank into giving me a loan. Later, they told me, when they saw me in a suit and polished shoes, they knew I was in trouble. I showed them the books for the mail order business and the shop. To my shop they offered me pounds 20,000. That was a lot of money in 1971. No one had ever lent me that much before. It gave me a real buzz and sense of pride. I felt I had come a long way since the days when I stood in the payphone in the school, trying to sell adverts in student. But pounds 20,000 still wasn't enough. I hoped my family would help. They had always been there for me and I understood then, as I still do now how vital that is when you are starting out. My parents had set up small trust funds for my sisters and me. We would have pounds 2,500 each when we were 30. I went to ask if I could have mine early. They agreed at once. Then Dad said, You are still pounds 7,500 short. Where will you get it from? You don't know, I said. Dad said go to lunch with Auntie Joyce. I'll tell her you're coming. So I went to lunch with my dear Auntie Joyce. She was the aunt who had bet me 10 shillings. I wouldn't learn to swim. Dad had called her, as he promised. She knew all about my dreams for the manor. She offered to lend me the money to be paid back with interest when I could afford it. I started to babble my thanks. She stopped me. Look, Ricky, I wouldn't lend you the money if I didn't want to. What's money for anyway? It's to make things happen. Besides, she said with a smile, I know how you stick at things. You won that 10 shillings, fair and square. I could still hear her words in my head when I went to pick up the huge key. To the manor. Money was for making things happen. I believed it then and I believe it now. I also knew that without my family I would not have been holding that big old iron key in my hand. What I didn't know was that Auntie Joyce didn't have £2.7500 to spare. She had such faith in me she had borrowed by taking out a mortgage on her own house. Fourteen years after buying the manor, we launched our airline. When we flew to New York, the plane was packed with my family and friends, all the people who counted in my life. As I looked at the proud and happy faces of my family, I knew they had helped make me what I was. I have learned always to respect talent. Even if someone is hired to do one thing, if they have good ideas or can handle something else, just let them do it. This, why I walk around, asking people's advice in the street, on a plane or on a train. It's true what they say, that the man in the street often has more common sense than many big bosses. Ken Berry is a good example. Ken started in one of our record shops as a clerk. His first job was to check the takings, but before long he was doing any other things. Whenever I wanted to know something, it didn't matter what, I would call Ken. He seemed to know everything about everything. Today people turn to Google or Yahoo. We just asked Ken. Two of the best things about him were that he could get on with people, and that he didn't have an ego. We found he was good at dealing with anyone from the top stars to their lawyers. Soon we had him working on the contracts. It was obvious that his talents were wasted as a clerk and he joined our small team in running Virgin. He became Chief Executive Officer of Virgin Music and, a lot later on, of EMI. As usual, I didn't always follow Ken's advice. Once, when we had grown too fast and were running out of cash, I called a crisis meeting. At the time, our top seller was Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells. Its massive sales funded everything. But our contract with Mike had expired and he was pushing for more money to renew it. I was very frank with him. I told him that the whole of Virgin Music was making less money than he was on his own. Why? he asked. I explained that we had many bands that didn't make any money at all. Shall I finance it all, he said. I nodded. Yes, pretty much. I thought he would be pleased to learn how many bands he was helping to support. But he looked peeved. I'm not giving my money away for you to blow it on a load of rubbish, he said. You can afford to pay me more. At the crisis meeting, I said all our eggs were in the basket. We needed to sign more bands and singers. We needed more hits in order to spread the risk and increase the size of the company. Ken Berry had been doing his sums. It's clear to me that we need to get rid of all our bands, apart from Mike Oldfield, he said. I knew we could jog along and make money with Mike Oldfield, but I was worried we would stay the same small company. And if his records stock selling, we would sink almost without a trace. I told Ken that we needed to find a new big band, fast. To save money, we cut back to the bone. We sold our cars. We closed the swimming pool at the manor. We didn't pay ourselves. Those were easy savings. The hard ones were dropping some artists and losing staff. But we had to cut right back to survive. We came through at last when we signed the sex pistols. They were the start of punk, which was the new big thing. On a funny note, when we dropped Dave Bedford, who wrote great music, he wrote me a very nice letter, saying he understood. It was pages long, all very friendly and polite. He also wrote to Mike Oldfield, calling me all the vile. Names under the Sunday. It was a pity for him that he then put the letters in the wrong envelopes. People have asked me how I can take so much time off to go on adventures around the world. My answer is that when you pick the right people, you can leave them to it. You know that things will run smoothly if you're not there. In 1987, I was in the middle of a boardroom battle to buy me when I had to dash off. I had agreed to fly a balloon across the Atlantic with Purr, and the weather was right. If we delayed, we could miss the moment. I went, knowing that I had the right people to talk the deal through. However, with the very real risk that I might die, the talks were put on ice, until I returned, if I returned. The hurricane in October of that year blew away all our dreams of owning EMI. The stock market crashed and our shares dropped in value. The banks didn't have faith that things would go up again and wouldn't lend us the money. In the end, I forgot about our takeover bid. Strangely. During the Dirty Tricks affair with British Airways, when I was struggling to keep the airline afloat, had to sell Virgin Music to Emi for half a billion pounds. It was one of the saddest days of my life, but in business you have to make some very hard choices. If the airline had gone under, hundreds of people would have lost their jobs. That half a billion made us safe for a very long time and gave me the cash to start up new business. And Virgin Music was also safe. The team all survived, which was the main thing. If anyone asks me what I believe in above all else, I would say my family. I firmly believe in the family. I know that sometimes they split up, and I have been through some of that myself. And I know that some people don't have anyone. But close friends can be like a family. We all need a strong support network. Even though I was taught to stand on my own feet, without my loyal family and friends I would be lost. Chapter 8, Have Respect. Be polite and respectful. Do the right thing. Keep your good name. Be fair in all your dealings. In the early days of virgin music, I talked to some Japanese businessmen. They were very polite to a young man in sweater and jeans who had no money. They taught me how important it was to always keep eyes and ears open and to be polite. They say that you never know who might hear or see you. People talk, Gossip has a habit of getting back to those you gossip about. I have come across this myself. One time I had to go to a meeting. I was late. I grabbed some papers and jumped into a taxi. On the way, the driver got very chatty. He said, Boy, I know you. You're that dick Branson. You've got a record label. Yes, that's right. I said. Well, ain't it my lucky day. Fancy having Mr. Branson in my cab. I hoped he might shut up so I could read my papers for the meeting, but he went on. He told me he might be a cabbie by day, but he was also a drummer in a band. He asked if I'd like to hear his demo tape. My heart sank. People were always playing tapes to me in the hopes they would be discovered. But I didn't want to be rude. That would be lovely, I said. No, you look tired. Tell you what, my mom lives around the corner. She'd love to meet you. Let's drop in and have a quick cup of tea. No, I'm late I started to say. I insist, guy. A cup of tea's what you need. Thank you, I said, weakly. Just as we reached the house, the driver put on his tape. I heard the words over the speakers, I can feel it, coming in the air tonight, he jumped out of the front seat and held the door open for me. The cab driver was Phil Collins, laughing like mad. When I made The Rebel Billionaire, I copied the idea from Phil. I made myself look like an old cabbie and drove the young contestants to the manor house, where we would be filming. I had my ears peeled and listened to what they said in the back. I also noted how they treated an old man who couldn't lift heavy cases. I learned a lot about them from that, much to their dismay. Respect is about how to treat everyone, not just those you want to impress. The Japanese can wait 200 years for a long-term goal for their company. They don't look for the quick buck. They want slow, solid growth. One time, I was looking for a partner to take a stake in Virgin Music. We talked to many Americans. They wanted to invest, but they also wanted to be hands-on, which means closely involved in the running of the company. We had our own way of working, so we wanted silent partner. We knew a partner that was too hands hands-on could cause conflict. I remembered the businessman from Japan who had treated me so kindly a few years before, so we turned to the East. I asked the Japanese businessman who came to see me how he saw us working together. Branson, he asked gently, Would you prefer an American wife or a Japanese wife? American wives are difficult, lots of divorce and alimony. Japanese wives are very good and quiet. Good and quiet didn't mean weak. It sounded perfect, and we went with his company. One of the best lessons I ever learned was when I did something illegal. I got caught and paid for it. At the time, I thought I was being a bit of a long-haired, hippie pirate. It even seemed a game. I was being bold, but I was also being foolish. Some risks just aren't worth it. During the 1970s we were all a bit hippie and thought it was fun to break the law. The mood was very much us and them. Pirate radio stations were blasting the airwaves from offshore. People were doing drugs by the wagon load. My scam seemed a neat little trick. It started by chance in the spring of 1971. Virgin was known for selling cool, cut price records and we had a large order from Belgium. If you exported records to Belgium, you didn't have to pay tax on them, so I bought these tax-free records direct from the record companies and hired a van to take them across the channel on the ferry. My plan was to land in France and drive on to Belgium. I didn't know that in France, you had to pay tax. At Dover the customs people stamped my papers with the number of records I had. When I arrived in France, I was asked for proof that I wasn't going to sell the records in France. I showed my order from Belgium and said I was just passing through France, but it did no good. The French said I had bonded stock and had to pay tax. We argued, but since I didn't want to pay the tax, I had to return by ferry to Dover with all the records still in the van. I was angry that I had wasted my time and lost a good order. But on the drive back to London it dawned on me that I now had a vanload of tax-free records. I even had a customs stamp to prove it. I thought I could still sell them by mail order or in the Virgin shops and make about 5000 extra profit. It was against the law, but I just thought I was bending the rules a bit. After all, I had started out trying to do the right thing. At the time, Virgin owed the bank 15000 It seemed, as if luck or fate was helping us out, I had always got away with breaking rules and thought this was no different. I would have got away with it if I hadn't been greedy. Instead of just selling the one vanload, I made a total of four trips to France, pretending each time that records were for export, and turned right around again. The last time, I didn't even bother getting on the ferry. After I got my stamp from customs, I just drove in a circle in the port at Dover, in one gate and out the other, and headed home. I am sure that if I hadn't been stopped I might have carried on. It was so easy. Only it wasn't as easy as I thought. I was being watched. I got a tip off that we were about to be raided. We had one night to get rid of all the tax-free stock. We cleared out our warehouse, but we thought that customs wouldn't bother with our shops. When the customs men burst into the warehouse, I hid a grin while I watched them search for the illegal records. I didn't know that they were also raiding the shops at the same time. It was a huge shock when I was thrown into prison. I couldn't believe it. I thought that only criminals were arrested. And then it slowly dawned on me that I wasn't a hippie pirate. This wasn't a game. And I was criminal. My headmaster's words came back to me. When I left school, aged 16, he had said Branson, I predict that you will either go to prison or become a millionaire. I wasn't a millionaire, but I was in a prison. My parents had always drummed into me that all we had in life was our good name. You could be rich, but if people didn't trust you, it counted for nothing. I lay on a bare plastic mattress with just an old blanket and vowed that I would never do anything like this again. I would spend the rest of my life doing the right thing. In the morning, Mom came to the court to support me. I had no money for a lawyer and applied for legal aid. The judge told me if I asked for legal aid I wouldn't get bail. He set bail at a whopping 30000 I didn't have that kind of money. Mom put up her home as bail money instead. Her trust in me was almost more than I could bear. She looked at me across the court and we both started to cry. I will always remember her words on the train back to London. I know you've learned a lesson, Ricky. Don't cry over spilled milk. We've got to get on and deal with this head on. Instead of going to court, the customs service agreed to settle the case. They made me pay a fine equal to three times my illegal profit. It came to a massive pounds 45,000. They said I could pay it back at the rate of pounds 15,000 a year. I wasn't angry. I had shown the law no respect and deserved to pay. Not doing anything illegal has been one of my watchwords then. My way of restoring my own respect was to pay back every penny without moaning. In fact, I gained. My goal became to make a lot of money, but to do it legally. We worked like crazy, opening new virgin records shops and thinking up good ideas to expand. Ever since then, when I am asked how far I am prepared to go in achieving my aims, my answer is the same. I make it a priority not to break the law and I check all the time that I'm not. Your reputation is everything. If you're starting in business and ask me if I have a lesson for you, I'd say. Be fair in all your dealings. Don't cheat, but aim to win. This rule should extend to your private life. My motto is, never do anything if it means you can not sleep at night. It's a good rule to follow. Chapter 9, Do Some Good. Change the world, even if in a small way. Make a difference and help others. Do no harm. Always think what you can do to help. I was brought up to think we could all change the world. I believed that it was our duty to help others and to do good when we could. I'm sure my headmaster was stunned when I wrote a long report about how he could run the school better. I ended grandly with the words, I would be very interested in your views on this, and any money saved could be put towards my next plan. He didn't laugh, or even cane me for my cheek. He handed back my report and said dryly, Very good, Branson put it in the school magazine. Instead, I left school and started my own magazine. I wanted to use it as a platform to change things. When my sister Lindy and I were trying to sell copies of *Students* in the street, a tramp asked me for money. I didn't have a penny, but I was so fired up to do good, I tore off my clothes and gave them to him. I had to spend the rest of the day wrapped in a blanket, but I felt quite noble. One of the ways we tried to help people was by starting Students Advice Center. They could ask about anything, from flats to grants, but mostly they asked for advice about sex. At the time, there was nowhere else to go for the kind of advice we offered. The center did so well that, 35 years later, it's still going strong. I spent the next few years building up Virgin. Making money was nice, but it wasn't my main aim in life. I enjoy hard work. The man who started IK divides his day into 10-minute units, and don't waste even a minute. You don't have to feel your tone rushing about in order to use your time wisely, though. Bill Gates, the world's top charity donor, said his staff could spend two hours gazing into space as long as their minds were working, and Albert Einstein came up with the theory of relativity in his head without paper or pen. He only wrote it down later. To be honest, I work out all my best ideas in my head too and because i don't use my hands for my work perhaps that is why i enjoy taking time off for hard physical tasks like crossing the atlantic in a boat it's said that money is root of all evil it doesn't have to be money can be used for good the biggest charities in the world were started by rich men and women but some were begun with next to nothing harvard the wealthiest college in america is a charitable trust It started with a few books and just pounds 350. Ike started in a garden shed. Its parent company is a charitable trust. The man who dreamed up the Big Mac started life selling paper cups. He was someone else who didn't believe in wasting time. If you have time to lean, you have tie to clean, he always told his staff. Perhaps he was in a hurry because he didn't get the idea for McDonald's until he was aged 52. His company now gives 50 million dollars a year to charity. So money can be a force for good. But you don't need to be rich to do good. Children used to collect silver paper and empty bulletins to raise money for good causes. Today, they go on charity runs or donate to Live Aid. There are many ways of helping others. One very simple way is to do no harm and that costs nothing at all. When I turned 40, I was at an all-time low. We were battling with British Airways for space in the skies. We had been voted best business class airline of the year, but it was a constant fight to find enough money to keep going. It was only Virgin Music's string of hot records that was keeping us afloat. Simon, who ran Virgin Music seemed to be losing interest in it, mostly because he thought the airline would bankrupt us. I sat down and looked back at my life. I asked myself if I should do something new, if I should have a complete change. I had never been a big reader, but I liked the idea of having more time to read. I said to Joan, I think I might go to college and do a degree in history. I you just want to chase pretty girls, was her blunt reply. Was she right? Was I racing a midlife crisis? Perhaps. So, instead of thinking what I could do for myself, I wondered if I could do more for others. I thought I might look into politics. I could use my business skills to do some good on major issues, such as fighting cigarette companies. I could fund a cure for cancer, look into healthcare, or help homeless people. There were any things I could do that would make me feel useful. I have gone on to follow this path in the rest of my life. I believe we should assess our lives from time to time. Have we reached our goals? Are there things we can weed out that we don't need? I'm not talking about throwing away old shoes or broken chairs. I mean we need to lose our bad habits or lazy ways that hold us back and clutter our minds. My cousin, Sora Peter Scott, ran a famous wetlands bird reserve. When I told him I wanted a lake at my home in Oxford to attract wild birds, he came and gave me advice. I dug it out and built several islands for birds to nest on. Swans, ducks, geese and herons flew in from all over the place. It's a very peaceful spot, somewhere I can think things through. Normally, I like to be in a crowd of people or with my family, but sometimes, you need space. I like to walk around the lake on my own, just thinking. When I was fighting to survive with the airline, it was one of the few times when I felt totally lost. As I walked around the lake I had some big decisions to make. When I had told the bank that Virgin Music was worth at least half a billion pounds, they had wanted me to sell to cover their loans to the airline. I had two choices, to close the airline or sell the record company. The problem was that I thought I could keep both. I just needed the bank to keep its nerve. It seemed to me that as long as they knew how valuable the music side was, their debt was safe. But banks don't like risk and they said that if I didn't sell it they would withdraw my loans. I wasn't sure what to do. I loved virgin music and knew that, as a company it would continue to grow. We had just signed the Rolling Stones as well, and I felt as if I would be letting them and all our other musicians down. I wasn't sure what to do on that rainy day as I walked around the lake. In the middle of this worrying time, in August 1990, Iraq invaded Kuwait. I heard on the news that 150,000 refugees had crossed into Jordan. I was a friend with King Hussein and Queen Nora of Jordan. The Queen was a beautiful woman, a highly trained Arab American architect who had met her husband, when she was working for Jordan Airlines. We had a lot of things in common. She had seen me on TV during my balloon flight around the world and phoned to ask if I would teach the royal family to fly in a balloon. I had shipped a balloon to Jordan and met the royal family. They were all as lovely as she was and the children were polite and friendly. I had a great time, flying over the capital, looking down on ancient, red-tiled roofs. When the people below realized that their king and queen were floating along in a wicker basket above their heads, they ran along, looking up and cheering. It was a difficult time for the king. There had been many attempts on his life and armed bodyguards were always around him, except they didn't know how to protect him when he was up in the sky without them. But for King Hussein it was a welcome moment of complete freedom. When Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, I watched the thousands of refugees flooding over the border on the television. I phoned King Hussein and Queen Noor and asked if I could help. I wanted to make a difference. The Queen said she would see what needed to be done and would get back to me. Later that day she phoned to ask if I could get them some blankets. The desert was very hot during the day and very cold at night. She said blankets could be rigged up to give shade during the day and at night people could roll up in them to keep warm. A few very young children have already died, Queen Nor said. How many blankets do you need? I asked. She said they needed 100,000. We've got only two or three days before hundreds start to die. It's urgent, Richard. Virgin Airline staff got to work, phoning around in today one of our jumbo jets was on its way to Jordan with 40,000 blankets, tons of rice and medical supplies. We returned with British people who had been stranded in Jordan. As soon as I returned to Britain, I was told that the head of British Airways was hopping mad. He said they should have been asked. It was pointed out to him that I had offered and he hadn't. In fact, he had apparently refused to let BA help in international crisis, even when approached by Christian aid. So, at once, he found a load of blankets and rushed them to Jordan. I was pleased that our example had partly pushed him into helping. When I heard that our supplies had not reached all the refugees, I flew to Jordan and again stayed with the king and queen in the royal palace. I argued with a minister who I knew had blocked things from moving and got him to send the supplies to the refugee camps. I also had long talks with King Hussein about Saddam. The king wanted Jordan to remain neutral in the conflict that by then seemed likely. His country was in a very weak position and he also saw both sides of the picture. He hoped things could be sorted out through talks, but he was worried that the West might go to war to protect the oil fields in Kuwait. He knew there was very little time. A few days later I was watching the news in London when I saw Saddam on TV. He had taken British hostages and was using them as a human shield. I thought about what I could do to help. I was one of the very few western people who had direct access to King Hussein. He in turn was one of the very few people that Saddam trusted. We could cut out all the angry people in the middle and perhaps King Hussein could talk to Saddam and put my suggestion to high. I called Queen Noor and asked if she could help with my plan. Come on out and stay with us, Richard. You can discuss it with the king yourself, she said. In Jordan yet again, I spent three days talking to King Hussein. He agreed that something must be done quickly before things got worse. I sat down and with a lot of care wrote a very polite letter by hand to Saddam. I asked if he would release all the foreigners who were trapped in Iraq. To show goodwill I would fly in medical supplies that Iraq was short of. I signed it, yours respectfully, Richard Branson. After dinner that night, the king took my letter to his study and translated it into Arabic. He also wrote his own personal cover letter to Saddam and sent it by special courier to Iraq. I could do no more and flew home. Two nights later, I heard from King Hussein. It was very good news. Saddam said that women and children, but he wanted someone of stature to fly to Iraq ask him in person, on TV. I phoned Sir Edward Heath, the former Prime Minister. We got on well because of our mutual interest in boats. Very bravely, he agreed to go at once. The plan was to stay with the royal family. From there, he would get safe passage to Iraq. A day later, King Hussein phoned he. I have good news for you, Sir. You can set off for Iraq. I have Saddam's word that you will be safe. I had one major worry before I set off. In spite of King Hussein's promise, many expected Saddam to take me and Edward Heath hostage and impound the plane. Because of the risk, we had no insurance. If Saddam did seize the plane, we would go bust. I was risking everything on this venture, but too many people depended on me. There was no backing out. When we left Iraq with the hostages and Edward Heath safely on board, we were so relieved all the way back. But one person wasn't happy. The boss of the A said, Who the hell does Richard Branson think he is, part of the bloody foreign office? Afterwards I wrote in my diary, What are the motives for doing such things? A month ago, I was at an all-time low. I seemed to have run out of a purpose in my life. I'd proved myself in many areas. I'd just turned 40. I was seeking a new challenge ellipsis points. When I reread what I had written, I realized that, as a businessman I could do a great deal of good. The rescue mission to Iraq had proved it. As a businessman, I meet incredible people like Nelson Mandela world leaders like the Russian Premier, and people of vast wealth like Bill Gates and Microsoft's lesser known co-founder Paul Allen. In fact, people in business and the very wealthy are in a unique position. They can connect with everyone, whether high or low, in any country, though a network of goodwill. I believe they can use that power wisely, for the good of the world, exactly, as I said in my first ever student column. My daughter Holly, who is a medical student is interested in the sexual issues facing young people in the UK. We have come full circle from where I started out in the world as she volunteers when she can at Virgin Unite and at Contact Us at Portobello Road in West London if they need counseling. My original love, music, is also a strong force for good. You only have to look at Live Aid and Live Aid and the incredible work that people like Peter Gabriel, Bono and Bob Geldof do in raising money for famine relief and other disasters in the third world to see that. Princess Diana did so much for charity when she was alive, and I was pleased to be able to help her with that in some small way. So I was very proud when I persuaded Elton John to sing Candle in the Wind at her funeral. The record sold 33 million copies worldwide and made pounds 20 million. This was all given to charity, exactly a Diana would have wished. In 2004 I brought myself closer to my vision of helping more people by setting up Virgin Unite. It is intended as a way of getting all the virgin staff around the world to work together to help with tough social problems. I hope we can continue to make a difference. Epilogue. I have always lived my life by thriving on chances and adventure. The motive that drives me has always been to set myself challenges and try to achieve them. Every lesson I have learned has been as a direct result of these tests. They include. Just do it. Think yes, not no challenge yourself have goals have fun make a difference stand on your own feet be loyal live life to the full the best time of the day for me is evening at necker seated around a big happy table with my family and friends having fun this paradise island combines many of my dreams and aims in life when joan and i first found the island buying it became a goal Raising the money and building a house on it, then getting water in, were huge tests to be passed. I never once said, Can't. I went for it, and we did it. Today, it's a place where my family and friends and I have a lot of fun. It's where I relax and think and dash and where some of my best ideas come out of the blue. I have to keep an open mind to see their virtual. I started to play tennis more on Necker. It's good to concentrate on the game and think of nothing else. Having learned to focus without my mind wandering and, after many years of avoiding books, I started reading more about 9 years ago. I have always read, but not heavy books, but I was surprised and pleased at how quickly I got going. I speed read but, thanks to my early problems at school, absorbed it all. I don't allow myself to trip over slow or tricky words, but get the meaning from the flow and sense of the section. Now that I have started, reading has become a great pleasure. I like history books best, which has led to my interest in archaeology. At the moment, I am funding a dive off the coast of Egypt to survey the ancient city of Alexandria. My favorite books are Stalingrad by Anthony Beaver and Wild Swans by Yu But I still can't use a laptop. People have given me a Blackberry and mobile phones, but I have always written everything down in school notebooks. It started when I found reading and writing hard at school and, to make up for that, build up a very good long-term memory. Now I jot down keywords in my notebooks and later, if I need to, I find a note and I can recall entire conversations. This has stood me in very good stead more than once when I have needed to prove something. But it's not just conversations, I also jot down my own thoughts. Anything I see and hear can spark an idea in me. I note it down at once and often look back through old notebooks to gain fresh ideas or to see what I might have missed. I would advise young people starting out in life to keep a notebook with them. It's a good habit to get into. I still believe in all the tasks my mother set us, but have applied them to a lesser degree with my own children, Holly and Sam. They live in the modern world, but like me they were brought up to challenge themselves. I encouraged them but never pushed them. Joan is a very down-to-earth Scottish woman. She made sure that we were always around other family members. We live a very stable, normal life and as a result, Holly and Sam are very well balanced. All the things in this book are my lessons and my goals in life, the things I believe in. But they are not unique to me. Everyone needs to keep learning. Everyone needs goals. Each and every one of my lessons can be applied to all of us. Whatever we want to be, whatever we want to do, we can do it. Go ahead, take that first step, just do it.